Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Bay Curious listener Tad Williams often finds himself traveling on the 880 freeway in West Oakland. And there's this building that's visible from the road that he's always wondered about. It seemed like such a beautiful structure. I guess that was the first thing that kind of caught my eye. It looks like a train station, but there are no train tracks connected to it. It's an impressive building in the Beaux-Arts style that looks stately and European. The front is dominated by three grand arched windows positioned over the entrance. Everything is very symmetrical. But the outside is routinely covered with graffiti. And this place is surrounded by a perimeter of chain link fencing because it's been abandoned for more than three decades. Tad wanted to know why. It's something I've always seen from the freeway and I just wanted to understand more about its background, its history, its purpose. Tad's question was selected by you in our public voting round. Today, we're visiting the once glorious, now derelict 16th Street train station in West Oakland. I'll tell you, this place has quite the resume. So why is it empty today? That's all just ahead on Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. Question asker Tad Williams sent us on a journey to learn about the impressive and neglected 16th Street train station in West Oakland. Reporter Azul Dolstrom Ekman found that for many coming to California, it was the end of the line. The opening scene in your next chapter. Oakland was a, a golden doorway into a new life. This is Alan Laird. He was born in Oakland, but before he was born, his father made the journey from Mississippi to California. And leaving the South uh, with brown paper bags and, and baskets worth of fried chicken and things just to make the journey. And chairs, chair cars that would not give sometimes and you're back with ache and you rock and, and you're thinking all the time about making it to that place. It was an opportunity to start a life away from the Jim Crow South. When the doors open up, 
the engine let off its last blast of steam, you almost hear a sigh of relief. Like hope is here. We made it on time. We made it all the way through that. And now we are at home, a new home. For many people, the first steps of this new life would be into the 16th Street Station. And they stop and pause for a minute getting off the train, gazing around, not knowing what to expect beyond those uh, highly polished brass uh, plated doors. Laird's father worked as a cook on the Southern Pacific Railroad. So Laird was there a lot in the 50s when he was a boy. I remember the smell of the hot dogs and the uh, hot peanuts and things from from the, the little snack shot there that had all the books that you could buy to read. And He says the marble floors were so polished, you could see the reflection of the chandeliers when you looked down. So I had a love affair with that station. It was built in 1912, during the golden age of rail travel. For decades, the station was as busy as an airport is today. There would be dozens of long-distance trains arriving every day. Now on train number track 22, uh, uh, that Shasta Daylight coming in, now arriving. And, uh, and uh, depending on what train my father was on, you know, it was extra exciting. It was the grandest railroad station ever designed in the San Francisco Bay Area. That includes San Francisco, Oakland, and all the cities around. This was the big station. That's Mitchell Schwarzer, professor and author of the book Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. He says that the station was also home to a huge network of local trains and streetcars. There would have been hundreds, 500 or more electric uh, interurban trains arriving from various parts of the East Bay. There would have been about 200 streetcars arriving and departing every day as well. Before the Bay Bridge was built, you could take a train from the 16th Street Station to something called the Mole. Essentially, a pier that took trains out into the Bay to a terminal where people transferred to a ferry to get to San Francisco. Later, for about five years, you could even take a train across the lower deck of the Bay Bridge into San Francisco. In the decades after the station was built, throughout the early 1900s, you'd see all sorts of trains. But the most luxurious were Pullman Palace cars. By day or by night, Pullman offers complete rest and relaxation, cleanliness, safety, and comfortable transportation for the American public. These trains were luxury sleeping cars, like hotels on wheels, designed for wealthy people to make the long transcontinental railroad trip in comfort. Imagine well-to-do travelers sitting on plush seats, chandeliers hanging from ceilings, windows with silk curtains and dark walnut woodwork. It takes a great army of men and women to maintain Pullman standards. The yards and shops, storerooms and offices work smoothly, day and night. It was an operation. Pullman employed maids, waiters, and cooks to provide top-quality service. But the porters were the most renowned part of the operation. An electric bell with which to summon the porter at any hour. They would carry luggage, shine shoes, and basically wait on passengers' every need. Porter! Porter! And the Pullman Palace Car Company almost exclusively hired black men for these jobs. So there was that kind of racist idea of black serving whites in a subsidiary role. They were expected to work hard 20-hour shifts. Many customers wouldn't even call the porters by their name. They just referred to them as George, after the founder, George Pullman, 
Calling someone the name of their enslaver was a tradition carried over from slavery. But at the same time, it gave a great source of employment for blacks around the country. The combination of a steady income and the ability to travel around the country was almost unheard of for black people at the time. So the porters have a kind of role as ambassadors of information, right, throughout the United States to black communities. Porters were known for distributing the Chicago Defender, the largest black newspaper at the time across the country, including to the South, where the paper was banned in some places. The paper helped fuel the great migration out of the South by informing people of opportunities elsewhere. So they're both, they have relatively well-paying jobs, stable jobs. They're moving around the United States and basically communicating to other black communities because they're getting off and sleeping and then getting back on. Because of the hard working conditions and the systemic racism, in 1925, the Porters announced they wanted to form a union, the first black union in the country, called the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were based in Chicago. But the vice president, C.L. Dellums, was based in Oakland. So Oakland takes on a very large role within the Brotherhood. It's kind of the, it's kind of what the secondary uh, headquarters of the Brotherhood. But the struggle to unionize was a long one. It took 12 years. The Pullman Company fired workers who tried to organize and did everything they could to discourage the union. But in the end, the Porters were successful, and Oakland played no small part. The branch that was the most steadfast, that had the largest membership who supported ongoing union efforts, was the, West, was the Oakland branch under C.L. Dellum. The Porters are credited with helping to found the black middle class in America, as well as the modern civil rights movement. In 1941, they threaten a march on Washington to protest employment discrimination. This is more than 20 years before the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King makes his I Have a Dream speech. Schwarzer says the community organizing that continues in West Oakland today, groups like Moms for Housing, are part of a legacy started by the Brotherhood. You know, if you look at Oakland's history of civil rights activism, this is really the kind of start, you know. If you think about the Occupy movement that happened in the 2010s, and, and you think back to the Black Panthers in the 1960s and 70s, you know, it all goes back to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. These railroad jobs were the foundation for a neighborhood of Black-owned businesses, nightclubs, and homes in West Oakland. Alan Laird remembers going to the Porter's Union Hall with his father and seeing a flourishing community. So in that community, we had all our own uh, businesses and finances. And uh, I remember my barbershop, Stovall Barbershop, was right there on 7th Street. It was vibrant. It was people walking on both sides of the street, going and coming with shopping bags and different things. West Oakland and the 16th Street Station were thriving. But all that starts to change in the late 1950s. The construction of the 880 freeway, and later, the BART line, demolishes a lot of those West Oakland businesses. And as the economy of West Oakland begins to decline, so does the 16th Street Station. The golden age of railroads comes to an end. Cars and airplanes become more popular, and all those streetcars and suburban trains cease to exist. By the late 80s, just a few trains a day stop at the 16th Street Station. 
Alan Laird remembers seeing the station in disrepair. When it when I pass by and it's just a hope with a million memories, you know, the, the window panes looked as though they had been in steady tears, you know. And I said, won't they notice me? Can't they see me? Don't they know who I was, you know? In 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake badly damaged the structure of the station, and it was closed. The last train rolled past it in 1994. The station sat vacant and abandoned for 11 years. People squatted in it, covered it in graffiti, and stripped the interior. In 2005, it was bought by Bridge Housing, a nonprofit affordable housing developer. They wanted to turn the station into something the community could use. But like other redevelopment plans in West Oakland... A lot of those plans have been derailed by at least two major recessions during that time. I mean, the dot-com bust was one, then the big recession. That's Jim Mather, the chief investment officer for Bridge. I met him outside the station. He says those recessions dried up a lot of the funding that the station needed. And the price tag for the restoration and seismic retrofitting that the station needs is at least $50 million. So the station is in limbo. We're on hold. I mean, it's really trying to find the financing. Any billionaires listening who want a project, here it is. I like to say we're looking for uh, somebody with deep pockets who says this is my legacy to Oakland. (laughs) Also here is Frankie Whitman, a consultant for Bridge. We're going to go inside the station for a chance to peek at some history most Oaklanders never get to see. So I brought someone along who knows the station firsthand. Hey, nice to meet you, man. Not too late? No, you're right on time. Okay. Perfect okay. timing. All right. So welcome back. All right, all right. How's it feel to be back? Oh, man, I just got a little chill. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lamar McDaniel. He started working out of the station in 1973. He's 71 now. He walks a bit slowly, which he credits to working on the railroad. By the time you leave the railroad, walking on the train, serving waiting tables and taking all that rocking and rolling, you be wore out. Feel like you've been in a football game for the last 20-some years. When he started, McDaniel was trained by some of the last of the Pullman porters to work on the railroads. He started as a waiter and worked his way up. And I was the one that got, I, you know, I got taught a lot. That's why I ended up being a maitre d', which was a job that a black guy didn't have during the Pullman days. He hasn't been inside since the station was closed. But today, we get to go in. Wow. Oh, yeah. The inside is jaw-dropping. The ceilings are 40 feet high, adorned with intricate plaster work. Golden light filters in through arched windows. McDaniel remembers some of the same things that made Alan Laird's eyes big as a kid. We used to have a guy over there that would shine shoes, and over in that corner was a snack stand. But the grand clocks and chandeliers that Alan Laird told me about are gone. Something's off. Um, But you could even see here, even though it looks very distressed, it's very evenly distressed. Since Bridge has owned the station, they've rented it out to companies like HBO and Netflix for TV and movies. And those companies have left a lot of their sets behind. The wainscoting, the door treatment, the window treatment, the valances, those are not elevators because there's no second floor, all movie sets. More than one music video has been filmed here as well. So in the same spot where porters once carried luggage, E-40 told us how to go dumb in the Tell Me When To Go music video. Mumford & Sons did a video here too, and it's hosted Burning Man-inspired parties. But Bridge can't even do that anymore. This, 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 little, this is new. 
<laughs> Back in the main hall, Whitman points to a pile of debris on the floor. Where do you think that fell from? Right up there. Wow, so the, the ceiling's like actively crumbling, huh? Yes. It's another reason we don't have, I mean, it's part of the liability thing, why we're not having events in here anymore. No hard hat. We walk out of the main hall through a dark corridor to the old baggage wing. Yeah. It's pretty dark in here. Yeah. Yeah. The baggage wing is thick with history. There's an old scale for weighing luggage and a large rolling door where passengers used to wait for their things. The first elevated tracks west of the Mississippi are directly over our heads. I walk with Lamar over to another room. It's the utility room where the porters would hang out between shifts. Uh, there would be luggage all over the place. Guys would be, when it wasn't a train to be really be serviced, the Red Caps would just hang out back here and shoot the breeze, tell old jokes and all kinds of stuff. Some people want the station turned into a museum for the railroad and the porters. Others want it to be an event space. Jim Mather from Bridge. Whatever happens here, Bridge is going to recognize and honor the history behind this station and its significance to the African-American community of Oakland. Just when the doors of the 16th Street station will reopen again is unclear. To complete the tour, we walk out to the back of the station. Where once there was the shore of the bay, there's the 880 freeway. Instead of trains, semis run in and out of the port of Oakland. There are no tracks connected to the 16th Street station anymore. They've been dug up and taken away. It's reminiscent of how this station has been disconnected from Oakland, the building neglected, the history obscured. Alan Laird again. It's like losing a friend, you know, but you see the shadow of it right there. And you want to run and tell people, say, I, I remember when that was a palace. And that one was filled with thriving hearts and minds and souls and energy and hope was waiting for you as you got off the train. You'll never hear a train pull into 16th Street Station again, but it's still possible the station could have a new beginning, just like the people that passed through it all those years ago. That was reporter Azul Dolstrom Ekman. If you want to see some pictures of the 16th Street Station, including some from our tour inside, head to baycurious.org. We'll drop a link in the show notes, too. Special thanks to Otis Taylor, Dan Brecky, and Paul Lancor for their help on this episode. Bay Curious is made by Katrina Schwartz, Sebastian Mino Buccelli, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is produced at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Have a good one. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. 
Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.